Good day to those of you who are listening. This is Amy Clarkson, and I'm getting ready for week four, chapter four, reading from the book, Simple, How Kids Help Us Understand God. I sure appreciate those of you who have continued to listen. Gives me a reason to keep going, keep trucking. This week's chapter is on free will. I think it's an interesting one. Maybe a little bit easier to think about than discipline, which was last week. Let's get started. Chapter 4. Free Will There are many times that I wish I could make all the decisions for my children. It would be so much easier if I could just choose what they wear to school, how they fix their hair, what they eat for the day, which friends they want to spend time with. Don't get me wrong. I have input on these things, but ultimately, I leave the choice up to them. There are some listening who are bulking at the idea of letting your child pick out their clothes or food for breakfast. I know every family is different in how much or little control they allow their children to have, but the fact is, our children still have their little wills that exert control over situations. Even if you make decisions about dress, meals, appearance, I would guess there are times that there has been pushback from a child with a different opinion. Deep down, don't we sense that our role as parents is more than just protecting our children from the wrong choices? That in actuality, we are trying to help them develop into good decision makers? It is easy for me to get caught up in the moment and focus on controlling their choices to protect them immediately. Somewhere inside of me, though, there is a nagging that, ultimately, I want them to be in control of their lives and make the right choices. The only way to learn what good choices are is through lots and lots of practice, making wrong decisions when the consequences are easily managed. This idea of free will, or the ability to have control over decisions, is central to the Christian faith. Without choice, there would be no relationship with our Creator. We would just be workers or servants doing the bidding of our God. And yet, it is that ability to choose that opens up so many conundrums within theology and faith. As mentioned in the first chapter, it is this ability to decide things for ourselves that causes much of the pain and suffering we encounter in life. One of the things I've had to wrestle with in the realm of free will is what role God plays in knowing and yet not controlling our decisions. One of the many attributes God possesses is that he is omniscient, or all-knowing. The question then becomes, if he already knows what we will decide, is it genuinely free choice? I think parenting provides an inkling into what this might look like for God. For breakfast each morning, I ask my kids what they want. Some of you shudder at this freedom. How crazy must I be to let my kids decide? Those of you who just serve what you think is best and most healthy 
probably envision chaos with free choice. In fact, I think people who prefer control over these types of little decisions are trying to avoid what they believe would happen if their kids decided things. Mayhem, disorder, complication. I can understand the fear. I have three kids, so the potential of different options for breakfast could be enormous, and it could take much of my morning catering to each child's preference. But here's the funny thing that's happened in time. They've become predictable and routine. They have probably 10 choices. Frozen waffle, frozen pancake, breakfast corn dog. Yeah, there is such a thing. Toaster strudel, toast, several types of cereal, oatmeal, eggs, yogurt, etc. Without fail, though, each child chooses the same thing every day. It makes me chuckle when I ask, what do you want for breakfast? And they reply, the usual. You must realize that because I know almost certainly what they will choose doesn't mean they don't have free choice. It merely means I know them well. It's not just breakfast food choices that are predictable. I can also predict what they will choose to wear to school, which child will protest on wearing a coat, and which child will need prodding to keep on task. Depending on what time they woke up, or their first few words to me in the morning, I can guess if there will be tears or fights or frantic scurrying before school versus those beautifully rare mornings when they seem to like each other and calm envelops us as we step out of the house. You do this too, don't you? You begin to be able to predict choices and actions of people you are around frequently. Usually, the more we know someone, the more we can anticipate what action, behavior, or even words they may respond with. If I can foresee actually hundreds of things my kids say and do, though they've just been with me years at this point, how much greater can God, who is my creator, know and predict what choices I am going to make? The first point, then, is that just because someone can predict a decision you're going to make doesn't mean you don't have free will. Not only that, but the more you know someone, the more confident you can be that you truly know what choice they will make. God's omniscience, which is perfect and total, doesn't change the fact that we still have free will. Now, there are a couple of considerations to make about this vast knowing that relates to me as a parent and then ultimately transcends to our understanding of God. One, because of the knowledge I have of my children, some of the advice and boundaries I dole out are unique to my children as individuals. For instance, one of my kids is super sensitive to caffeine. If we are splurging on pop for a meal out, this child cannot have a drink with caffeine. It's a unique boundary just for him. I think there are times God may give a specific boundary for us, knowing that the potential for harm is unique for us as individuals. Other times, 
In knowing a particular struggle or weak spot for one of my kids, I'll set a standard for all of them to follow. One of my boys has a tough time getting scary images out of his mind from movies. I've had him come to me fearful because something he watched a year ago is haunting his mind. It's easier, now that I know this about him, to limit scary content for all three of them. It's true the others aren't affected in the same way, but it's not worth causing him harm by either excluding him from family movies or adding more nightmare material to his repertoire. There are stipulations like this in the Bible as well. General things God has said to watch out for because it may cause a brother or a sister to falter. This is the first consideration. The more I know and understand my children, the better tailored my encouragement and guidelines are for them. They still have their own choices and decisions to make, and I can predict the impact of those choices. However, because I love them and don't enjoy watching them suffer, I try to offer guidance to provide and protect them on their journey of choice-making. This advice or boundary setting is at times unique to them as individuals, and at other times, the standards for all three are set to shield just one. Here is the second consideration. Despite being able to predict most of their decisions, both good and bad, I am always hoping and rooting for them to make their best choice. Part of that relationship of love means that I want goodness for them and I believe in their best potential selves. Thus, even when they are sleep deprived and on sugar highs, running around the home like banshees, I know they have the potential to make a good choice when I say, okay, time to go brush your teeth and get ready for bed. I know they are capable of saying, sure thing, and walking calmly to the bathroom, taking turns with the sink, cleaning up any overzealous toothpaste squirts, changing into PJs and putting dirty clothes away, and climbing into bed. It's what I hope for every night. There must be a part of me that expects that because I'm surprised when it doesn't happen. Surprised and yet not surprised. It's as if I hold both realities in me at the same time. One is the potential and one is the probable. I would guess God does this on an infinitely vaster plane. He holds both the potential and the probable for our decisions within him at every moment. He is forever optimistic that we will follow the right path. This truth is written all over the Old Testament from the very beginning. When I say beginning, I really mean the beginning. Let's look at the very first example of free will gone awry in the Bible. Genesis chapter 2 verses 16 and 17 in the NIV says, and the Lord commanded the man, 
You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The setup is much like what we experience with our children. There is a boundary in place with complete freedom to make decisions inside or outside of that limit. Adam and Eve used their free will to choose disobedience, eating from the tree that will eventually cause death. Do you think God was surprised by their choice? If he holds both the probable and potential, then I suppose we could say he was surprised and not surprised. More examples of God's optimism in the midst of his omniscience comes in Judges chapter 2. We read that over a period of 350 years, the nation of Israel went through a cycle of rejecting God, being enslaved as a consequence, repenting, and being restored. This cycle occurred at least 12 times in Judges, again and again, over and over. And yet, don't you think God was like we are as parents each time genuinely hoping they would make right decisions, yet fully aware of the likelihood of disaster. This idea of perfect knowing, coupled with the hope of potential change, can be tough to wrap our minds around when it comes to God and free will, especially if we think of it as concrete and fixed. Here again, we can turn to parent and children interactions to see the fluidity of omniscience. The ability as a parent for me to predict my children's behavior is continually shifting. It's not static by any means, but changes with each action they choose. When they pick which friend is coming over to play, I begin to visualize how the time may go and how involved all need to be. One particular friend and my son have a more contentious relationship, so if this friend comes over, I can already predict I will be intervening to keep the peace and may have more consoling to do after. It's not just who he invites that changes things. As whichever friends arrive, I will evaluate both their moods as well as see what activity they decide to do. Their attitudes and choices continue to change my expectations. Going outside to shoot baskets doesn't require as much from me as deciding to do a science experiment in the kitchen does. I'm in a constant state of predicting so I can plan for potential and probable problems. God is constantly shifting his predictions of our choices too, but with one added benefit. This benefit allows him to do this perfectly. He is omniscient. God is in the past, present, and future simultaneously. And yet, though he is unchanging, it is precisely our free will that makes this something very dynamic for him. In a much grander sense, then, he holds both what is and what he hopes will be in every moment. My little brain can't mentally grasp God's abilities, so the parenting example 
of holding both what I expect and what I wish for for my kids in their day-to-day choices is the best I can do for understanding the concept of omniscience as it relates to faith. In other words, a faith that requires free will to ensure autonomy and ultimately a choice to have a relationship with our Creator is not nullified by that Creator's ability to know everything. In fact, His omniscience, coupled with how intimately He knows me, allows for complete guidance and direction individually. That's it for this chapter and this week. Next week is one of my favorite chapters. It's on hope and disappointment. So I hope you remember to come back and listen. Otherwise, have a great week.